Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential television. It changes us chemically and it changes the anatomy of the heart. That's what chronic depression and stress can do to the physical structure of your heart. And people aren't talking enough about that. Hey, it's Dr. Phil. Thanks for tuning back in to Fill in the Blanks. Remember to download for free, subscribe, rate, and share, especially this episode, because this episode has really high stakes. I predict that you can learn something today that absolutely, literally, no hype, can save a life. Maybe yours maybe a friend, maybe a loved one, but you're going to get tools today that can actually cause you to save a life. It may cause you to mobilize yourself, do some things that it could be yours, or I mean, maybe, as I said, it could be somebody that you care about, or it could be a total stranger. One person dies every minute in America of heart disease. One person every minute dies of heart disease in America. Now, this is preventable. It's not 100% preventable, but we can really have an impact on this, and it can start with you. This is like a day off for me because I'm talking to my really good friend, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, Dr. John White. He's been on before, and I have lured him back again to discuss his new book, Take Control of Your Heart Disease Risk. He says, despite advances in diagnosis and treatment, heart disease remains a major cause of illness and death. But by proactively living a heart-friendly lifestyle, you can mitigate your risk for years to come. You have the power to reduce your risk. That's a direct quote. We're also addressing something that doctors just don't really get into, maybe because It just wasn't emphasized when they went through their training, maybe because it takes too much time, maybe because there's not really a medication for it. But I'm talking about the role our emotions, especially depression, anxiety, and stress, play in heart disease. And when I say they play a role in heart disease, I mean it actually impacts the chemistry in the body, the anatomy of the heart and can contribute to whether you have a heart attack or whether you don't. So if you're somebody that struggles with depression, anxiety, stress, loneliness, you need to perk up and listen because this could be contributing to your risk of having a life-altering or life-ending cardiac event. It's time to stop ignoring this mind-body connection when it comes to our heart. I've got Dr. White here. I'm going to stop talking about him and start talking to him. Welcome back, John. Dr. Phil, thanks for having me. And thank you for writing not only the foreword to the book, which you did, but also helping educate me through our numerous discussions about that mind-body connection, about the role of our emotions. So thank you. 
Well, I don't know that I taught you anything you didn't know, but maybe we freshened up yeah. our awareness going back and forth. And I think we do that. Mm-hmm. When you and I talk, I think we play off each other. We kind of rekindle some things we haven't thought about for a while and go back and forth. And I think you've forgotten more about the mind-body connection and heart health than I've ever known, but you certainly bring it back into focus. And I've really enjoyed our conversations about this. We talk about these things, whether they're popular in the medical and psychological community or not, because there's empirical science to back this up. I think that's important that we tell people the truth about what's going on in their bodies and what's going on in their minds and how those interact. But I've never really made it a priority in the past until we really started to have our discussions about emotions and and mental health. So like a lot of other doctors, I didn't spend a lot of time on it. Whereas now I realize it plays an integral role that if you want to reduce your risk of a heart attack, you just can't focus on diet and exercise. You need to focus on your emotions as well. And that's kind of the thing that most people think about, not to discount those things because they're absolute building blocks to heart health, right? If you diet, you exercise, you eat right, you break a sweat, you don't have to be an athlete to do it, just that you keep your feet moving, you have some activity, you avoid some of the toxic foods, you eat some of the healthy foods. That is a major step in the right direction of mitigating your risk for heart disease. Yeah, And, and to be fair, though, when you're depressed or you're anxious, you're not thinking about, oh, I need to go to the gym or I need to go for a walk. You're not thinking about, oh, I, maybe I'll have fish you know, for dinner, you're not focused on anything that's impacting your health. And and that makes it worse. Yeah. Let's talk about this generally. And then I want to get into some specifics because you identify some hormones in the body, some changes in the anatomy of the heart that go along with some of these emotions. But I want to talk about what you just said first, which is more general. I want people to think about this. There are certain lifestyle changes that go along with certain emotions that have a profound effect on us constitutionally, just our overall health and specifically our heart. To give a real straightforward example, people that are depressed, generally speaking, are less active. Let's talk about that commonsensically. We all know that if we get fewer rewards from life, that we tend to be less positive and more subject to being negative, which leads to a greater risk of being depressed, whether it's clinical depression or you're just down. So if you are less active, you have psychomotor depletions in your baseline or whatever, I think old sayings get to be old sayings because they're profound. Old sayings like, you can't get a hit if you're not swinging. If you have fewer chances at bat, you're going to have fewer hits. So if you don't put yourself out there, you have less opportunities to get a win. You have less opportunities to get rewards from life. And if you are depressed, you're less active. So if you're less active, the chance of getting rewarded getting encouragement, having a win at work, having a win socially or with friends, you become more withdrawn, less engaged in the world. There's less opportunities for you to get reinforced, right? That's right. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If that happens, then you tend to withdraw more. You're going to be less active, which means the building blocks we talked about, you're going to probably have less tendency to exercise. You're not going to think about your diet as much. You're not going to be as active in managing your lifestyle. So just generally speaking, depressed people don't focus on their grooming as much. They don't focus on activity as much. They don't have as many opportunities to get reinforced. And I've always called it an auto-exacerbating disease for that reason. Because the less you do, the less rewards you get. The less rewards you get, the less you do. The less you do, the less rewards you get. It's like circling the drain. It just gets worse and worse and worse. In that way, it hurts us because we don't have as much opportunity to get rewarded. That's bad, but it goes beyond that. It changes us chemically, and it changes the anatomy of the heart. Talk about that some. And it's not just mumbo-jumbo. I think, you know, sometimes people think, oh, well, stress is bad, and, you know, depression impacts your health. But as you point out, there is a biochemical reason, and it relates uh, to hormones. So what we see in people with depression is really this chronic inflammation. And if we measure, and I talk about in the book, this something called C-reactive protein, which is a measure of stress. People that are depressed have elevated levels of C-reactive protein. And that's not a good thing to have because inflammation, when you have it chronically, damages our blood vessels. It causes something known as endothelial dysfunction. Fancy words for it messes up the lining of your blood vessels. So it makes them less elastic. Imagine if you had a garden hose and there were kinks in it or it didn't um, able to supply you know, water, you're not gonna get important nutrients to, to your flowers, to your grass. It's the same thing in our heart. If our blood vessels aren't functioning well, we're not gonna get good blood supply. So there's that biochemical reason of inflammation and C-reactive protein. It's all related to cortisol, and we've heard about that in terms of the stress hormone, but it's also norepinephrine, epinephrine, adrenaline, sometimes people will call that. And, you know, in acute stress, when you're in a dangerous situation, those are helpful, but not when it's chronic, because that's going to clamp down on your blood vessels. That's going to change the way that your platelets function. So there's that biochemical reason. And then there's also, as you talked about, the actual changing of the shape of the heart. You're talking about the left ventricle, right? That's exactly right. So 
the heart, as many people may remember from biology classes, four chambers, left atrium, right atrium, right ventricle, left ventricle. The left ventricle really is the powerhouse of the heart because what that's doing is it pumps out oxygenated blood to the rest of the body. That's what you need for your organs to survive. And with depression, um, what's happening is you're changing the way that left ventricle looks. So it's becoming larger. That's a bad thing. It's becoming more narrow at the neck. We've talked about this thing called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, which the Japanese uh, coined, and it's really after a fishing pot used to, to catch octopus. I don't know if that's what they're, <laughs> they're still using, but the point is it's really preventing your left ventricle from functioning properly. That's what chronic depression and stress can do to the physical structure of your heart. And people aren't talking enough about that. But people aren't going to know this, right? You're not going to know this walking around. If you're depressed, stressed, lonely, you're just bummed out emotionally, you're not going to be able to self-diagnose that that's happening in your heart. No, and, and most of the time, if you are depressed, there's a bunch of different things going on. You may feel fatigue, right? Partly because you're depressed, but also because your left ventricle may not be functioning well, and you're not getting enough blood supply, so you're fatigued. You may start to have some fluid backup in your lungs or in your extremities, and, and that could be relating to, to other issues that you're having with in terms of your diet and other aspects. So that's what's so hard with depression or anxiety. You don't see it. You, you, don't, you don't feel your left ventricle getting bigger, but you slowly start to develop those symptoms. And the important thing, Phil, that you and I have talked about is you know, conditions like heart attacks aren't sudden. People think they're sudden, like all of a sudden it just happened and, and people seemed well. It's a result of daily behaviors that you've been doing for years. And that's why it's so important to start addressing it when you're in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and you think you're fine and nothing can impact you. You have high blood pressure and I've seen it in patients all the time, 15, 20 years. They don't do anything about it. It's that long-term complication that they experience later in life, and they're 50 and they're 60, and that's the real challenge. If somebody's listening to us right now and they're thinking, okay, I can't feel my left ventricle changing, but I do feel fatigue. I don't have the endurance that I used to have. I do tire more easily, and I've just wondered if I'm out of shape or whatever. Maybe they are. But what should they go get done? What should they ask their doctor to check what kind of tests should they ask for cardio-wise. And you want to understand what your risk factors are. And those are things like age. As we get older, we're at greater risk. For men, it's typically in their 50s. Women, it's in their 60s. Certainly, if you smoke, that's a big risk factor. Being overweight, as we point out about physical inactivity. And then, you know, your diet. But when you go to the doctor, you really should talk about what your symptoms are. And sometimes people want to please the doctor, so they may not... Uh, always say what's going on. But if you're over 40, you want to be getting a cholesterol level, a whole lipid panel checked, your cholesterol, your HDL, your LDL, and your triglycerides. And you want to be doing that every year. You want to be thinking about if you're starting to have that fatigue or you're starting to have some chest discomfort, you may need something like an exercise stress test. We talk a lot about coronary calcium scores. That's in the book. And, and that's really a test 
that really is going to correlate the amount of calcium that we see on this scan with the amount of plaque that you might have. So instead of subjecting you to an angiogram where we inject dye, we can actually do a special CT scan to look at the amount of calcium. And patients need to be informed about these tests and these procedures that can be done to really analyze what's happening with your heart. You might also need an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. And that'll tell you what? If you get an ultrasound of the heart, that's going to tell you what? That's going to tell me how big your left ventricle is and how well it functions, how well it pumps. That's one of the best tests that we have, especially as we're thinking about heart failure. And and I get it, you know, Phil, sometimes insurance may not cover it. There can be co-pays that can be challenging uh, at times. But again, this is something that doesn't happen just all of a sudden. It happens over years. And to catch it sooner rather than later, that's going to pay off in the long term. There's one measure they're going to give you is an ejection fraction, right? That's exactly right. So that goes to your point where how well the heart pumps out blood and and it's oxygenated blood. So if you're in your 20s and 30% in terms of ejection fraction, about the imagine it's uh, you know a, a bowl or a bottle and you're pumping out the water. If you're only pumping out 20 to 30% of that, that's bad because you're not getting enough blood supply and it's also backing up. So it's just staying there and that's going to go in your lungs and your extremities and that's going to create a lot of challenges. And it's a simple test that can be done in 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. I've had one done recently and I could see it on the screen. Yeah. And you see your heart mm-hmm. closing, making like a fist and there's a certain angle where it almost just disappears. It just goes flat. It's closing right. so much. And you get an ejection fraction. I think what above 50 is normal. Is good. 65 yes. is great. Even better. And, yeah. yeah. I don't know whether it was covered or whatever, but I sure felt better when I saw it and saw mm-hmm. the numbers and stuff. And they said, no, you're good to go. And they did the same thing on the arteries mm-hmm. and all to see if there was any plaque built up soft or hard. And if you're clean there, then that's good news. And it's exactly right. And, and I talk about soft plaque and hard plaque. There's a difference in terms of, you know, what's more dangerous because you, you don't want plaque to break off because then it travels downstream and then it clogs your blood vessel. And part of this is, as we've always talked about, let's empower people with information. And and the good news is with a lot of these new tests, uh, procedures and lab tests, I'm going to give you your personalized data. So I'm going to tell you how much plaque you have in your blood vessels. I'm going to tell you what your 10-year risk is of having a heart attack. And a lot of times people will think, well, I'm feeling fine. I don't have any chest pain, so I don't need to worry about it. But I would argue you need to understand what your personalized risk is. And and that's what's so important about giving people information that they can do something about. As you pointed out at the beginning, nothing's 100% preventable in life. But it's also not the other way, like, well, you know, I'll just do whatever I want and I'll deal with the consequences later. Well, you might not be alive to deal with the consequences or you may be impacted so much, you ha- quality of life has decreased significantly. Yeah, and I think what some people don't think about is the fact that you might survive something, but how much damage has been done to the heart muscle, for example, if the heart muscle has been damaged, 
then the best you can do is what you're left with after the damage has been done. And if you can stop it before that damage has been done, then you got a whole lot better chance of having longevity and a quality of life. Stop it before damage happens. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes that's not all recoverable. Sometimes you can recover, but not always. And the longer you wait, the harder it is to recover. And just a, a fact for folks, heart failure is the number one reason why people over the age of 65 are admitted to the hospital. Really? And repeatedly admitted to the hospital. Even with all the medications we have, it is hard to treat. It is decreased quality of life. And again, it's not something that just happened all of a sudden. It's the behavior choices, including addressing stress and depression and all the other things that we're talking about for 10, 20 years. It adds up over time. And then it it can get to a point where sometimes it is too late to make significant changes in the function of your heart. Well, let's talk about the flip side, because we've said that you can have these emotions like anxiety, depression, stress that can really roll up on you and change your hormones, change the anatomy of the heart. And if the left ventricle is changed, that can recover, correct? You can do things that can help it um, contract better. So there is some degree of recovery, yes. Yeah. But let's talk about the flip side, because there is evidence that shows that emotions, attitudes, such as gratitude, Mm -hmm. can have a positive impact on areas of the brain, Mm -hmm. for example. Talk about that some. I was in your office, as you know, a little earlier today, and I didn't comment on it, but I noticed you have a sign that says gratitude, don't you? And and what's really fascinating about gratitude is because at first it sounds kind of corny, you know, be more grateful and and your life will be better. But what I love that you like to talk about, Phil, is what's the biochemical reason? What's going on? And what we've seen through functional MRIs and PET scanning is for those people that have practiced gratitude, and that's typically writing something down, that's how they studied it, Uh, nearly every day in a journal, something that they're grateful for. It can be as simple as, you know, I had a nice cup of coffee today or I had uh, dinner with my entire family, that they saw two areas of the brain that changed, that in some ways we could say were rewired. And the first one is the amygdala. It's a Greek word means almond. So it's an almond-shaped area of the brain, and that deals a lot with um, usually emotions such as fear and anger. Um, and what we saw is that for people that show gratitude, that area of the brain does not light up as much. It's it's dampened a bit. And then for an area of the vagus nerve. Vagus is actually from the Latin, uh, means wandering. What the vagus nerve does is impacts our heart rate. So it makes our heart rate go faster. It makes our breathing rate go faster. And when you're able to kind of tone down the vagus nerve, your breathing rate gets better. Your heart rate gets better, right? How do we feel when our hearts go on 110 beats per minute? We don't feel so good. I feel anxious if that happens, if we're breathing too fast. So Actually, the biophysiological basis of gratitude is changing the way 
that our brain is processing emotions and then impacting our heart rate and our breathing. So that's what I think is so exciting about gratitude and, and why often when you see people that have a lot of gratitude in their lives, they seem happier in many ways. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, having gratitude in your life is, like you say, maybe that sounds corny or sometimes I'll see people and say, how are you doing today? And they're like, oh, I'm blessed. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, all right. All right. I, I got you. And sometimes that sounds genuine mm -hmm. if somebody's overcome something or something great happened mm -hmm. in their life. But what we're talking about here is, we all have a strategy. Maybe we've consciously chosen it or defaulted to it or whatever, but we all have a way of being in this world. You can watch people, maybe it's a party or a meeting or something. There'll be some people that come through the door like a house of fire. Man, they mm -hmm. just come in and they just have to be the center of attention. And it's just like a whirlwind coming in the door. And Everybody looks up and they're making a lot of noise and all that. Next person might come in and they just kind of drift in like a cool breeze and they lean against the wall and they're taking everything in. Not saying one's better than the other, but they're different ways of being in the world. I always say, whichever it is or any place in between, be who you are on purpose. Whatever you do, own it. Be who you are on purpose. If one of the things that increases your longevity, increases your quality of life, increases how you impact others, is to have an attitude where every day you find things to be grateful for, that you wake up in the morning and you just do certain things that put you in a positive frame of mind, an appreciative frame of mind, if that has a positive impact on your mental health, on your physical health, why wouldn't you do that on purpose? Why would somebody not choose, as part of their way of being in the world, to be grateful, to have gratitude for being alive, for having gratitude for fresh air, for Whatever. I love animals. I'll be sitting in a stoplight and I'll see a couple of dogs, you know, sitting over on the grass or in the fence. And it'll sound corny, but 
I have a sense of gratitude that I get to see some animals. Where I live, we call it Deerview Mountain because we have so many deer mm. eating my flowers. <laughs> I'm not grateful for that, but I'm grateful for the deer. Almost every day, I get to see a family of four to six deer walking around the property, and I love seeing those deer. Were you always like that? Because I would argue that gratitude is also something that we can learn. It's mm -hmm. also about perspective. And, and a lot of people, including myself to some degree, learned it during the pandemic, right? You could be overwhelmed by aspects of the pandemic. But I also learned I was grateful by being able to literally have every meal with my family that I otherwise wouldn't have done. You know, I have two young sons and a wife, right. and I normally wouldn't have had that time. So I had more time with all of them than I ever would. I actually was grateful for not having to travel so much. So I chose that perspective to some yeah. degree, but I might not have always had that. So I'm curious as to whether you feel people can change their perspective. I think they can change. That's what I mean by be who you are on purpose. We can be in this world and say, this world sucks, or I don't like the politics, or I don't like where I have to live, or whatever. Okay, you can choose to focus on that, and maybe that's part of your reality. But you can also choose to purposely find something yeah. you're grateful for. And it can be simple that there was not traffic today coming here. Yeah. There was, but not as much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and, I was grateful for that. And it doesn't have to be something yeah. profound. Absolutely. I think you can choose. I used to do skills training with people, and one of the things I had them do was write down a 65-item blessings list. Yeah. And one of the reasons that it was so long is because I wanted them to get down to things that would seem trivial. Mm -hmm. So they began to look around and take note of things that they took for granted. The first 10 are easy. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for my spouse. I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful that I have a roof over my head. I'm, those things are easy. When you get down to number 58, <laughs> you have to look around and say, uh, I'm grateful I got carpet on yeah. the floor. But you really have to purposely look around and find things that you would take for granted that you are grateful mm -hmm. for. And like you said, maybe it's grateful that they've paved this road. Right. I'm grateful that I'm not driving directly into the sun. I'm grateful that I get to listen to music for 15 minutes on the mm -hmm. way in instead of pissed that there's traffic. You can choose an attitude of gratitude, and it can make a huge difference. I think you and I were talking, and I don't know if we wrote about this in one of our op-ed pieces that we've done together, and thank you for doing those with me and sharing those with me, but there is considerable research out there that says cognitively we are about 30% more efficient if we have an optimistic attitude. That's right. Think about that. If you go into this life each day with a chip on your shoulder and just pissed off about something specific or just in general versus saying, okay, you know what? I'm not going to be naive. I'm not going to be gullible. I'm not going to, but I am going to find something to be optimistic mm -hmm. about, something to be happy in my approach. You can be 30% more intelligent more cognitively efficient than if you don't. Look, I need every edge I can get. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm old and bald. If I can get a 30% edge on cognitive efficiency, I'm going to grab it. <laughs> I'm going to find something, put a smile on my uh -huh. face. I just think people need to recognize that when you do that, that de-stresses you. And that has to lower inflammation, catecholamines, all of the different things that play into your risk for heart disease, has to lower cortisol. It's hard to be happy, optimistic, and stressed out at the same time. Those are mentally, emotionally incompatible. I don't think enough people see it that way. And that's why I think it's so important to have these discussions. And then the challenge is they're angry, they're depressed, and they feel lousy, right? Well, there's a reason why that's the case. It's not just because they're angry and depressed. It's also what impact that's having on their mind-body connection. I think other cultures have focused much more on that mind-body connection than we have, even though we've known about it for thousands of years. We just dismiss it, or we think it's not important, or it doesn't apply to us. And, and, and that's what's so frustrating. But why not focus on it? If you think about it, if you're all pissed off, you got a chip on your shoulder, you're going to walk around angry and upset. I've kind of noticed, generally speaking, the world doesn't seem to too much care. <laughs> no. I mean, it's kind of like, if yeah. you want to say, I'm going to go over here, sit in the corner and eat worms. The world yeah. doesn't stop spinning around. They don't care. I mean, you can impose that on other people if you have them under your thumb in some way. I mean, maybe if you're the parent and they're the child or you're the boss and they're your employees and you want to come in and spew that kind of toxicity. But generally speaking, the world doesn't care. That makes them more angry. Exactly. <laughs> on the other hand, if you're optimistic and you bring that into mm -hmm. the room, people tend to be drawn to you. It just seems to me there's a better way to go through this life than to be drag kicking and screaming. It, it's a great point. No one likes that angry friend, that that angry coworker that is always annoyed about something. But, you know, part of it, Dr. Phil, is I think, as we've discussed, that's not our concept of health for the, for the most part in this country. We think about health and the medical community is partly to blame just on that physical aspects of your health. And then all of a sudden, if you have depression, we cart you off to a whole nother specialty, right? And, and don't want to address that issue. And, and we fail to recognize at times that it's a continuum. And we don't talk to patients, we don't talk to the public enough about that and its relationship to the physical health and the mental health. You can't have one without the other. And, and we don't always acknowledge that. And then, then people don't feel they need to change anything. I guess that's why I'm saying if you're going to be in this world one way or another, why not choose something that works for you? Why not choose something that makes you smarter, healthier, more efficient? For example, we know that if you multitask, you're going to be very inefficient because we know if you're working on emails and somebody comes in and says, can I discuss with you? a problem on the production floor at the factory. Just take a minute. Well, we know the brain uses different parts of the brain for different tasks. Well, you've got to disengage from this, engage another part of your brain, 
And that takes some time. Yeah, because your brain doesn't fully disengage no. from the current. I, I love that you point that out because people think that multitasking is a sign that you're really smart. I've seen sophisticated job descriptions from Fortune 500 companies when they're describing what they're looking for, they say in a positive way, are you a good multitasker? And the right answer to that should be no. I don't multitask because if you don't multitask, your efficiency goes up yeah. an average of 42%. That's not going to get you the job. We're going to have to say yeah. <laughs> to your point, but, but you're, you're right. Exactly. In terms of how staying focused on one goal is going to more likely get you that result than if you're trying three different things at the it same time. It takes about 15 minutes to successfully disengage from one task and effectively re-engage in a second task. That task is going to take two or three minutes. Oh, no. You spent 15 minutes disengaging there and re-engaging over here to do something for two minutes. Now you got to go back over here and re-engage over here. So you've spent 30 minutes disengaging yeah. and re-engaging to do something that took two minutes. What people need to learn to do is say, if you got a few minutes, actually, I don't right now, but if you'll just hang tight, as soon as I finish this, I'll buzz you in your office and deal with what you need. That's learning to set boundaries. That's having a strategy for the way to be in this world. It's controlling your relationships, and it's doing things that are going to be more efficient for you, your organization, your peace of mind. And helping your health. Your overall and it lowers your stress levels without a doubt. So that's what I mean about being who you are on purpose. That to me is the building block. That's the building block. Have a strategy, do it on purpose. When you get into like chapter four on page 39 of your book here, that's the first time we get into the middle emotional parts of this with depression. That's where people need to stop and say, okay, this is up to me. I have to manage this. And not only will I address my depression, but it will improve my heart health, lower my risk factors, and put me in a better position for longevity and quality of life. You know what I learned from you, Phil? And I've learned a lot of things over the years, but something that I learned from our discussions is, is, is you noticed I put the mental health aspects of the book at the beginning. Yes, you did. And I put the things like diet and exercise, you know, a menu plan that I've worked hard on, an exercise strategy. I put those at the end. And I purposely, from our discussions, said, I'm going to put this at the beginning because I want to make sure that people read this, that I make sure I have their attention. And that's not something that I would have done Bill, years ago. Really? But it's something that I've learned. I, I don't even know if I would have had some of those chapters <laughs> in the book, but I've learned a lot. And, and, and that's where I feel that this can be a benefit for people because not enough doctors are talking about it. And you can do all those things right. And if you're chronically depressed, if you're anxious all the time, you're chronically stressed, you're still going to increase your risk. And I'd argue you're still going to have lots of challenges. And if you don't address those upfront, and early on, it's going to create major problems. Yeah. Well, I love your chapter towards the end, putting it all together, because you don't get to medication until chapter nine, because you put a lot of this onus on the individual. Yeah. 
yeah. to manage this. We're too quick sometimes to say medication. And then the medication, and then in your conclusion, it's putting it all together. I really liked that aspect of this book. Like, all right, let's tie all this up together after you've given them all the different elements and aspects of managing the risk. I don't see how anybody can read this book and you can see mine is all dog-eared yes, and marked I up and stuff. It's very well read. Thank you. But I don't see how anybody can read this book and come away without a strategy for reducing their risk for heart disease. You know, people go, oh, yeah. It's like they can't see it, so yeah. it doesn't seem as real. But this book is going to save people's lives. Well, well thank you. And, and really the focus was on, because I hear this from patients all the time, tell me what to do. Tell me what to eat, Dr. White. Tell me how I should exercise. And, you know, I can't tell you everything that you can do, but I can start to provide that framework. I, I think about a, a WebMD interview we did a few years back, which is one of our most popular, where you talked about in the setting of New Year's goals, you have to have an action plan, yeah. right? You have to have a strategy. Otherwise, you're going to fail. And they're not, you know, true goals. And, and that's the concept that I took for the book as well. I've got to give you a plan. And, and whether it's a meal plan, an exercise plan, but also a plan to address your mental health. Yeah. And maybe this is hard for some people because when I was in private practice, I had people that I worked with for years that never knew they were depressed until they weren't. Mm. They just thought that's how life is. They never knew they were depressed until it lifted and all of a sudden, they had an optimism about them. The sky was blue. It always had been, but they never noticed it. They walked around with their head down. All of a sudden, they looked up and looked people in the eye, and they really heard music for the first time. They saw the world for the first time, and they went, wow. It's like I've been living in black and white, and the world's in color. I've missed it all these years. And I said, it's because your depression has lifted biochemically, emotionally, behaviorally. And they said, wow, I never knew I was depressed. I just thought everybody was in black and white. So ask yourself, is there more to life than what I'm living? Because if, in fact, you're living with depression, anxiety, stress, and loneliness, there are biochemical correlates to that that are burdening your heart. Mm -hmm. Not emotionally. <laughs> burdening your heart hormonally, biochemically, and structurally that could be shortening your life and certainly changing the quality of your life. That's like a sleeper cell that can flare up on you at any time. And if you change that, you can improve your health. You can improve your risk for having a heart attack. I'm not saying don't exercise, not saying don't have a good diet plan, not saying don't go see your internist, your cardiologist, but also recognize you can help yourself if you get yourself emotionally straight. That's right. And, and life can be challenging at times. Life can be hard, but there are things that you can do. There are perspectives that you can change that really can get you on that path to better health because you want that quality of life. It's not just the number of years, it's the quality of the years as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, the book is Take Control of Your Heart Disease. 
It's written by my good friend, Dr. John White. He's the chief medical officer at WebMD. I emphasize that because that means that his access to research, his access to resources, his ability to look at the empirical science behind heart disease, he's not your average bear in what he can access. (laughs) They have tremendous resources. They don't put anything up at WebMD until they have dug in, checked it, rechecked it, pulled up collateral studies. And that's the case for the book. Everything has been reviewed and re-reviewed. Just, you know, a little uh, point that I'll I'll make. Everything on WebMD is reviewed by a board-certified physician, every piece of content. And if you look closely, it'll tell you who and when it was. And Everything in this book has been reviewed and re-reviewed and, and documented. And I include a bunch of references just so you know yeah. people know it's it's not just my opinion. It's really based on science. Yeah, I'm looking here in the book. You've got 36 pages, something like that, of bibliography yeah. of resources. In and, tiny print. Yeah, in tiny, <laughs> tiny print that I had to put my glasses on to see of all of this tied back to peer-reviewed research. That's right. From top-level experts. Yeah. I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, it's yeah. really based on the latest data yeah. and the latest science. Which is one of the reasons I was proud to be asked to write the, the forward for, because I know it's rock solid. Well, thank you. So again, Take Control of Your Heart Disease Risk by John White, MD. You can get it where books are sold. It will change your life if you read it and do the things that are in here, which I think will save some lives. You're also a big proponent of learning CPR. You and I were working on some cases today mm-hmm. where lives were saved because people with CPR intervened in the four to six minutes before an ambulance could get yeah. there. And minutes matter. Yeah. So that's what's really so important. And, and people are sometimes fearful. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And that's why it's so important to learn about what you can do. Uh, and to empower folks with the information of not just now by reading the book, How to Save Your Life, but now learning CPR, How to Save Someone Else's Life. We had some cases caught on tape that we looked at, and we were very fortunate to have the American Heart Association send some Mm -hmm. ambassadors out to help as well. So it's been a good and productive day. Dr. John White, MD, thank you so much for being on Fill in the Blanks again. Thank you, Dr. Phil. Appreciate it.